McGregor. And with each installation in this podcast, we're going to explore the world of spirituality, what it means to be alive, and how is it that we can bring our spiritual selves, tarot, meditation, religious or spiritual practices into our daily lives. Please check out all of our episodes at thehermitslamp.com slash podcasts. Or you can search The Hermit's Lamp in podcasts on iTunes, catch it on Stitcher Radio or other services along those lines on your smartphones or wherever you like. So secretly in my lab for the last several months, I have been messing around with making t-shirts. I personally had some that I wanted and I couldn't find anything like them anywhere, so I decided to just jump in and start doing it. So after some R&D and some ups and downs, you can now find a whole bunch of them on the website at thehermitslamp.com. Click on the shop button, and then you'll see a tab that says t-shirts, and you'll find some hoodies and other stuff in there. Soon to come will also be caps and other fun items they include images of tarot cards, some craziness of my own invention, and my tribute to Hunter S. Thompson with my rare high-powered mutant Tetragrammaton hoodie. So go check them out if this is something you're into. And otherwise, enjoy the episode. I'll talk to you soon. So welcome to another installment of the Hermit's Lamp podcast. I have the pleasure today of being on the line with Gordon White. And Gordon White runs a wonderful podcast called Ruin Soup, where he talks to magical types of people all around the planet and uh, has some really wonderful conversations. But given that some people probably don't know who you are, Gordon, why don't you give us a quick introduction? Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Gordon. I was uh, born and raised Australian. Uh, had kind of uh, an interesting sort of pan-Pacific childhood on my father's side in, in that sense. Uh, and I, in my early 20s, moved from Australia to New Zealand and was there for about six years and then London uh, and have kind of done a fair amount of sort of traveling and exploring Neolithic and Paleolithic sites. And they became my first book, Starships of Prehistory of the Spirits, uh, I've also published a couple of other ones like The Chaos Protocols and Pieces of Eight, and they're more to do with practical enchantment. Uh, and yes, I run I run a, a podcast and a blog uh, and a website, a premium member website called Rune Soup. And that's me, I think. Mm. I think that's it. So, of course, when I posted that you would be on the podcast, immediately people started flooding in with questions for you, Gordon. Can you can you guess what the what the overwhelming first question was? I'm pretty sure I can. <laughs> how how weird a child were you, Gordon? <laughs> um, I was precocious. Mm -hmm. uh, my my parents have stories. I started sort of speaking very young, uh, complete sentences very young, and kind of. Um, my father has a one of his favorite stories of me is like a three or four year old. Uh, when we were in Fiji one trip, um, I'd worked out that I could sit up at the bar and order drinks and the Fijians would give them to me. Mm. And um, they couldn't find me. And one of the friends, family friends we were there with, uh, who was a fellow doctor like my father, came up and I said, Malcolm, can I buy you a drink? So 
beginners you mean to continue i've been buying drinks for doctors in bars for uh for a long time but uh i was also i read fairly early so sort of words and books and so on have been a big thing for me so i read lord of the rings unattended or unaided at age of six and that was quite transformative mm. i've read it a bunch of times since then so i certainly I can't say I understood it all at six. <laughs> sure. But uh, but I did get to the end of it. And that sort of set up an interesting relationship with the Tolkien world for me because I like different parts of Middle Earth emerge from like the gloom of early childhood memory as I read it because I didn't know what – one of the ones I remember, I didn't know what a wane was and it's a wagon. And mm. so I, I sort of learned that by 13. So I have this weird kind of fever dream relationship with uh, – with Middle Earth, uh, but my um, my mother is uh, a very competent energy healer, and sort of she's touring temples in Myanmar right now, and has travelled the world and um, stayed at Satya Sai Baba's ashram multiple times, and met the Dalai Lama, and swum with whales, and all this kind of thing. So I had that kind of going on in the background as a kid. She also lived in haunted houses and was an automatic writer, and 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 so I never really got us into it. But for me, the magical kind of journey began through a series of dreams that I can't actually remember, but remember the impact of it about the age of 13, where I just sort of sat bolt upright in bed uh, on a Saturday morning and walked down the hill a couple of miles, maybe about four miles to our now gone local independent uh, bookstore, which was run by like a remarkable woman uh, who sort of could was very big on her esoterica and could match the right books to the right people, uh, which we don't really have that too much anymore. Mm. And that was kind of it. So I, I, I had my money from uh, soccer refereeing and I stole some more from my mother and I went down and bought books and um, sat in the grandstand of the local um, stadium uh, or local sports field and underage smoked cigarettes and, and started reading uh, magic books. Mm. And so, I mean, one of the things that, that sort of prompted, um, you know, me, me reaching out to ask you to be on the podcast was, you know, this idea of, um, that I'd heard you talk about in a podcast of, uh, how do we, how we create meaning in our lives? You know, what, what, what is it we do now? You know, if the, the old structures have sort of been falling apart, if we're, you know, we're, we're stepping into more magical ways or opening up to more magical ways of being. And, you know, we've been through this sort of whole existential postmodern deconstruction of everything. What do we do? Where do we go with that? Where do we go from here? You know, and, and because as a reader and because many people who listen to this are tarot readers, you know, we get people coming in all the time who are like, so what do I do with my life? You know, what, what is the point of it all? And, and so I'm going to, I'm going to just throw you that easy question to, to start. What, what do we do with our lives? How, how do we find our meaning, Gordon? Well, I think it's sort of a, a, a first principles or axiomatic question to start with, which is, uh, is there any meaning? And I think there is, but the reason tarot readers and so on get people coming in saying that is that the, the sort of postmodern crypto-Marxist turn on its way to sort of reorganizing culture in in a, in a state-first sense, stripped meaning out of it, that kind of evolved from that sort of impenetrable French theory period of, of the post-war leading into the 70s. So you have this idea that nothing means anything, there is nothing behind the signs, and, and that works quite well for 
a uh, that runs a consumer society very well mm. because if there's no meaning a yogurt maker is the best thing in the universe and you should definitely buy it now the thing is philosophically that's extremely naive and funnily enough uh that's why it's a first principles question so rather than kind of looking straight to to magic or an individual tarot reader we just kind of have to realize that it's really been in the last 50 years that we've decided uh there isn't any and it, it emerged largely and i think um uh, colin wilson the sort of famous 20th century british writer was quite correct in his description of the left bank existentialists of the Paris post-war period, they'd just come through Nazi occupation in World War II and, and their old structures were um, proven to be useless. And there's certainly no way you're going to go back to, to rebuilding them. So they sort of had this, um, that's where, why existentialism is, is, is a kissing cousin to nihilism if you do it wrong. Yeah. Uh, and But he sort of contended that they hadn't quite got... Uh, meaning correctly and and one of the people that inspired his thinking was an actual scientist um uh well alfred north whitehead and in, in a particular in a book called process and reality so he's this mathematician and scientist who realized that the scientific description of the world um couldn't describe uh meaning or experience of meaning at all even in principle on a whiteboard so to kind of cut a very complex worldview short, he decided that uh, meaning was actually fundamental to the makeup of the universe. Because if you get down to a subatomic level, all we have is descriptions. We don't have explanations. At a, at an atom is a particular configuration of charge, so positive, neutral, and negative. And whatever configuration you have makes a different atom, and that makes everything. Well, then what is charge? Like You, you end up in that point where as um, Terence McKenna once said, science says grant us one free miracle and we'll explain the rest. Mm -hmm. when, you, when you get down to the bottom of it, Whitehead said, well, what if, not, this is not quite what he said, but what if charge is meaning? Like, what if the entire universe is actually built of meaning? And if you say that, then you suddenly have a universe that is filled with it and you haven't violated scientific observations in the slightest because you're down at this level where we just have descriptions, not explanations. There are certain things that science just wants us to, uh, that they have to take as given in the universe. And, and if you get down to that level, it's really anybody's game. And, and then the next thing sort of builds up from there. So, that's sort of step one when people say, what do I do with my life? It's it's to kind of realize that this is not, you aren't the first person to think that question. You aren't the first person to pose it to someone. It has probably been the question. Um, well, the, the exploration or experience of meaning has been the question and the quest since we've had modern humans. We've just kind of lost it in, in a, uh, in, in a post-war world. The good news is it is like, less than a millimeter in front of your face at any one time. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things that, you know, I remember when I started reading uh Crowley and stuff when I was like 13 and I was like, "Oh yeah, I'm going to I'm going to like pick up the phone, well, aka do ritual and call up my guardian angel and they're just going to explain it to me and then that's going to be it. I'm going to get it and I can just get on with my life." But that's such a western and really kind of almost a western consumerist approach to things, right? This idea that we can somehow have a, a, a singular exchange where, where it emerges instead of, 
you know, what is really sort of a more uh, non-Western idea or more indigenous idea of we live in this world of meaning. We live where spirit and all of these things are all around us all the time. And if we step into that world and interact with it, then we can start to well, start to even ask the right questions or the better questions than the ones we might have started with. Yeah, and I don't know how. I mean, you can find uh, in Hildegard of Bingen or um, some of the sort of high Middle Age Catholic mysticism, you do get a sense of an animate world and and our place in it. So, again, it's one of those things we sort of we that in that case we lost it when with the Cartesian turn, with the rise of Descartes and the um, the permanent separation of mind and body, which was essentially a theological argument. Uh, and funnily enough, he didn't actually say that the universe was a dead machine. His his followers did. So he kind of like Darwin has been mischaracterized by being followed by stupider people. But uh, we we we're lost. It's almost like we've had multiple hits over the head. We've had head trauma over the last say five hundred years mm-hmm. uh, about how we experience the universe. And uh, and again, it, the quest the quest is almost literary to begin with. But it it starts with. And I know what you mean about. It's very Western that there is this one answer and I do this thing. And in the magical world, that's called the room service magic model, uh-huh. where you just call up a particular spirit of the Goetia or you call up your holy guardian angel and say, I want this. And uh, it's it's a fairly naive cosmology. Yeah. You know, and, and I think, again, when you start traveling to other places, you know, as you've traveled or when you start stepping into other traditions – then, then you get to open up these other ideas about how the world is, and you know what what does it mean, you know, to to have a destiny or to have a, a, a purpose or where, you know, they, they, a lot of these traditions, you know, I mean, I practice uh, Lukumi, so you know, this, these traditions have these very sophisticated understandings of this interplay of purpose, destiny, free will, and all of these things that that are always working and always at play and always dancing with each other. So in the sense they're they're never really this destination that we get to, but they're more about um, how we, how we engage and stay engaged in ourselves and in the world around us. Yeah. Um, it's the sort of big thing to do. Uh, the big sort of move in, in, in Western culture at the moment is, is a decolonizing turn. And uh, one of the ways of doing that, because it, when you mentioned Crowley, if you talk about the Victorian orders, these things emerged at, at the height of the British Empire when, you know, it covered most of the world's surface and uh, everything was just this great sucking sound of, of, of culture and ideas and being harvested from their, you know, contextual cultures into London as, as you know, playthings. Uh, and that, so it's quite an appropriative mode. Uh, the question before, I guess, practicing magicians in the 21st century is one of, well, how do we explore sameness and difference and learn from each other in a way that isn't appropriative? And there is no easy answer for that, but that's where it's at. And what you were talking about, about having different things like, you know, um, destiny and presiding spirits in, in kind of constant tension and dialogue, this is a much more sophisticated way of... Uh, being in the world than you find in in a Crowleyan or, or Golden Dawn magical system. It's much more sophisticated. It's a better match for 
um, the unpredictability and just the general taste of life. But that doesn't mean we should all, you know, um, pivot Lukumi. It, it means we, we work out what, uh, what we can learn from that without harvesting from that. And, and a big part of it is... So the kind of presiding mission of Rune Soup is uh, the re-enchantment of the world. Mm-hmm. And this is, a, this is a massive component of it. I don't really... I am more interested in the universe either being made of experience or meaning, because Whitehead really said experience, but it's experience of meaning, so whatever. Um, I am more interested in living in a uh, re-enchanted world, in, in, in essentially an animate world than I am what, you know, oh, I get to be a movie star. Um, that tastes better to me every single moment of every day rather than the kind of moonshot wish that we in the West associate with, with the notion of destiny. Uh-huh. And uh, you find a more sophisticated reading of that uh, and, and a better understanding of where humans are in, in, the, in the sort of wider ecosystem of the physical and spirit world. You get a better understanding of that because it's been honed in some cases, like in the case of Australian Aborigines, oldest continually practicing cultures on Earth, it's been honed for 50,000 years. That is, a, that is a precision instrument for experiencing the universe. Uh, and we've got this kind of broken, clunky one that's about 500 years old. I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, there's, there's things we can learn here. Yeah, and there's so many pieces. I've had the, the pleasure of spending time with local indigenous elders in the, in the part of the world in which I live. And there's so much knowledge about the self the ego for lack of a better term of it, you know, the, the things that we would call psychology, there's so much observed and explored ideas and, and technologies and ways of working with those things that have been built up for so long that really when, when people have the opportunity to think about those ideas or to experience them, if they're open, can really jumpstart and transform so much about where we're at and where we're going and our capacity to to make the kinds of transitions you're talking about or to be more present or to recognize the meaning that's there or how we might go about moving to a more meaningful arc in our lives. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, the catch is, um, and this is why decolonizing is so challenging. You, this, The solution in the 70s was a very poor one which was essentially the resurrection of the noble savage idea. So sure. that's when you, you know, you'd buy um, dream catchers in, in gas stations and, and, you know, everyone's wearing yoga, uh, yoga shawls and so on. And that was not very good. Uh, you, you can, with the benefit of hindsight, it was bad, uh, but you understand what people were grasping for uh, in doing it. So it's, it's really challenging how we have the uh the dialogue between them because we have uh, so much to learn and it's this is why i think the re-enchantment description works for me if you look at something like psychoanalysis it is almost shall we say two-thirds of the way to what we might kind of glibly call shamanic therapy but there are things that uh, there are rules within how psychoanalysis works that prevent it from getting that final third and they emerge from the kind of medicalized um, Western atheist worldview. So there's no touching, uh, makes sense, but uh, that doesn't work in a shamanic context. It must always be done within a clinical environment and that 
is that is provably not the best way of uh particularly when you're dealing with things like trauma or fear of water or so if you have a, a fear of the ocean uh the, the sort of one of the axiomatic things that makes psychoanalysis work of course is that you you face and match your fears so they have no power over you well if you can't leave the the clinical space how are you going to and it's it's interesting we're so close uh, and I, i'm not suggesting we kind of change the rules because there are dodgy people out there and you don't want your health professional touching you without your permission and all that kind of thing but uh as, as we look across 2017 and and the, the sort of dumpster fire that is the end of the West, you, it's not as bad as it might seem to start with. These pieces have only been missing for a couple of generations, and and we have most of them there. So it's a first principle attitude adjustment, and that that can be a night and day change in people's lives if they are uh, kind of searching for meaning. Yeah, I think I think in some ways there's a lot to be optimistic about. I mean, like you say, there's also a dumpster fire. So I mean, there's a, there's a lot not to be optimistic about in in what's going on right now in a lot of places. But I think that there's there is this sort of this. I'm just going to jump in there actually yeah. because this I think I feel quite um, strongly about this. But even then, we have a better model for coping with that outside this Western idea that things continually get better, the economy mm. continually grows, this sort of myth of progress of things, this, this sort of technocratic illusion where we all end up with George Jetson's life. That's yeah. crap. That is a faulty belief system, and it's failed. Whereas if you look at, uh, you know, indigenous cultures or Taoism or something, sometimes you go through bad periods. Sometimes, and that's the period you get. Sometimes bad things happen. Sometimes there's a forest fire. Sometimes the emperor is corrupt. You know, uh, they have a better model for sometimes this kind of thing happens. And it's again, it's because I'm quite good friends with an uh, astrologer by the name of Austin Kopic, who you should have on your show if you haven't. Uh, but he said astrologers have a really good understanding of cycles and like uh, this ends. Like the, the bad period ends, but it doesn't end yet. And and I, I feel when you look out across the lack of emotional maturity that people have in experiencing a slight deviation from what was a false belief system. Guys, we're, again, it's, um, these things happen, and right in front of you are the tools for personal sovereignty and personal transformation, and, and this is just the weather at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that being on board with, seeing, with working to see what is and working to see how we move past our, you know, deconstruct our sets of beliefs and, and reconstruct more accurate ones and then repeat that process, you know, uh, like, like Mr. Lilly talked about in, uh, in a lot of his work. You know, I think that that stuff is really important because we never, there's no end, right? Like that's the, yeah. that's the difference between sort of some of these worldviews is, for for a bunch for for certain ones you know especially long long standing ones there is no end signs come and go cycles happen things cluster and they don't necessarily have an inherent meaning i mean to to come back to that idea they don't define things in a in a permanent or structured way they are the weather or they are what's going on now and we we deal with them but they aren't they aren't the end you know there is no, no. end yeah Funnily enough, I'm just going to start 
you know, name dropping friends uh, because you you said something that reminded me. A friend of mine, Connor Habib, was in a Twitter argument, uh, uh, and he was saying that Trump doesn't represent an existential threat to him. How could he possibly? Uh, from from a spiritual perspective, how could any of this possibly? Because you don't end either. Like there, it's not an existential threat by definition. It like, do you exist after death or do you not? Like, even if thing, nothing's going to get that bad. But like, even if it got to that kind of full nightmarish dystopia, it's still not an existential threat because you cannot be destroyed. Yeah, I think one of the things that's been really important in my journey around this stuff over the last number of years is this sort of re- reclaiming the necessity that things mean anything at that scale. Like certainly losses and ups and downs and other things, they they have meaning, but they don't define anything at, at, a, at a permanent scale in the way that you're talking about like there, right? It's very much that matter of, well, I I still get to be what I what I am. I still get to do what I what I'm doing. I still get to you know work towards being more present and more engaged in all of those kinds of things. It doesn't. Yeah, it's not an existential crisis. It is a uh, a practical or logistical or you know I don't know whatever we could pick other words for that kind of crisis. Yeah, it's just the weather. Sometimes you're walking in the rain. Sometimes you're not. Uh, you know, and and that is that's healthy and funny enough that's the kind of not exactly that but people who have survived you know proper properly intense situations like you know nazi death camps or or soviet gulags have it's been that that gets them through which is this actually can't this can't touch me it can't touch the real me and that's the extreme version of it so you know a, a slight wobble in in this sort of uh, dis- capitalist dystopia, as far as I'm concerned, is 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 weather. Mm-hmm. Well, and certainly a lot of what's going on now is uh, uh, it's uh, it strikes me as this emerging of what what is actually going on and what has been going on. You know, it's it is new uh, and it is emphasized, but it's it's been going on for a long time like it's not yeah it's it's the surfacing of corruption it's a very interesting phase uh this particularly i mean you know your um your cousins to the south and mine to the northeast uh are one way or the other it doesn't matter how they landed on the election are waking up to the kind of context of american empire and what it costs and what it does and Yes, it's quite intense and they're quite divided at the moment. Um, but this is a natural process because it's it's been there all along. Like that 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 sort of that mode, that imperial expansion mode has been there, and they're suddenly realizing it has consequences. And uh, it's it's a uh, again a timeline piece. Like let let's let them have the discussion and hopefully <laughs> yeah uh, hopefully something better comes uh, of it from the end it's it, again you with a cycle model you look at it and go um this is what happens at this at this point in the timeline and it's um in many ways it's a distraction too uh, i mean well it is a distraction uh there are there, with a kind of there are learnings available to people in a Western cosmology that kind of show the things in that sort of serenity prayer sense that you can influence and that you can't. And and this is sort of one of those times where it might 
it might be better not to be distracted by even if you vehemently disagree with it which is completely fine obviously uh it might be better to look closer to home uh right now given the weather and in that sense that's kind of like step two once you go okay so meaning is a thing how do i arrange my life so that uh i experience it more and probably that's one of those steps. It's not the only one, but that's one of them. Mm-hmm. So if someone if someone comes to you and says, hey, Gordon, I've lost all sense of meaning in my life. What what do you where do you point them to that? How do you do you do you have notions of how you help people slide out of this sort of existential, you know, colossal picture of themselves or their lives towards something more powerful or more orientated? Yeah, but I don't necessarily do it in a nice way uh, <laughs> uh-huh. because I don't really care what they want to do with their lives. I don't. Um, so when they say that, what it means to me is that they're they're living in a dead universe. So you fix that. Um, I, like it's impossible having, you know, say, taken large doses of mushrooms um, to live. The universe you wake up in the next day is very different to the one you went to sleep in. Hmm. And then, it, then it's like you you get to meaning then because suddenly you're living in in an alive universe of of um, consciousness and spirits and so on. So I mean, in the Chaos Protocols, they say um, there's this, there's a chapter that's called Becoming Invincible, and that's what you do. You need to have an experience that is so extreme that there's no getting the toothpaste back into the tube once it's done. And that doesn't have to be nice. And for most of human history, it probably wasn't. There are a lot of trauma-based uh, shamanic initiations. There are a lot of, but it doesn't matter. It, like you, you come away from them going. So I, I use as an example, I don't recommend this, but it will work. Get a couple of friends in an Ouija board and go into an abandoned mental hospital for the criminally insane and see what you get. And obviously, I don't recommend anyone doing that. But the thing is, the next day, you will be living in a very different universe. And that is sort of the um, – that's almost a red pill, blue pill way of doing it. Mm. But that you will find very quickly that the, the, the sort of quest for meaning or the absence of meaning becomes much more manageable when – You've had an experience, whatever it happens to be. Uh, you've, if you've been abducted by aliens or you've grown up in a house that Discovery Channel's done like a ghost show on, you're fine. Like the meaning quest for you is easy. But for most people, it isn't. And they need to go and have a becoming invincible moment. Uh, and then really it's up to them at that point. Hmm. I can see that. Yeah, my my moment like that was uh, I was – 14, I was in the Dominican Republic. I was uh, driving a motor scooter and uh, I got hit head on by a dump truck. And, uh, you know, when I woke up three days later in the hospital, it started it started a deepening of all this quest and that sort of anchoring of everything, you know. But um, so but in that sense, though, um, do, do you feel that people are, are best just to jump in the deep end? Well, you can't be destroyed. So this kind of gets back to what we were saying before. Mm-hmm. The worst thing that will happen is you'll die. And, and people really only go on these – it's extreme to say, but people really only go on these quests when like life is intolerable. Like everything tastes like ash and um, they're alone and scared and, and lost. They're, they're, they're worse than dead at that point. So 
um, I don't, there's a sort of, there's no sugarcoating that magic is weird and real and unreliable and doesn't come with safety goggles. Uh, it, it never has. Yeah. Um, there are sort of subsections of it where you can kind of be, although, I mean, I don't know a single, I know a, lot, a bunch of tarot readers myself. I don't know a single tarot reader that hasn't had some kind of weird poltergeist phenomena just by nature of the job that he or she does. Sure. So there's no avoiding the fact. And, and it's disingenuous to tell people who are thinking about it anything otherwise i'll just do this and you'll be safe or don't touch that yet or don't meddle with it because i got told all that stuff as a kid and of course that was the first thing i did like oh you know you're probably not gonna want to mess around with uh, summoning demons yet and off i go sure uh, and i think there needs to be a sort of a reality check to how we describe this to people it's real it works um most and it never stops being astounding and weird like you know i'm now decades into regular practice of, of, of practical magic and uh every time it works you're like holy shit this stuff works that doesn't that feeling doesn't go away uh but at the beginning of it i don't think you need to you just need to be honest with people and say i don't know what's going to happen the the risks are yours but what's your alternative hmm. yeah i think that's the 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 bigger the need for medicine, the the bigger the risks might need to be in order to get there, right? You know, absolutely. And I, and I think that there's also this thing that happens where um, many people, many people, certainly a chunk of the people, um, overstate. You know, there's a, a level of hyperbole in the mix as well, right? Which is, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, well, it's all it's all this, and it's all you know, I have no meaning in my life and whatever, and it's like. I, really? What about all these things that you're doing? What about, you know, what about that way in which you're actually continually engaging in life, you know, as opposed to, uh, as you say, the people who, who everything tastes like ash for, and then they're like, I really need something drastic. Well, that, um, that separates the, the men from the boys or the girls from the women, because you tell them, okay, off you go to the abandoned criminally insane mental hospital. And they're like, uh, I'm good, actually. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I thought. Uh-huh. Uh, and yes, I agree. And funnily enough, th- those those sort of minor cases of meaning loss, if you will, are better solved by having that worldview adjustment. So I, I think, and this is the sort of demonic promise of a consumer culture, and it's sort of pilloried or explored very well in, say, Fight Club or something, that everyone gets to grow up to be a rock star. Mm-hmm. Now, there, you get a nuance of meaning and destiny in uh, pretty much any other culture other than a Western consumerist one that kind of allows you, even at the small scale, just enjoying an apple. So if you think of the universe as an evolving organism rather than a dead machine, an evolving organism perpetually existing to experience itself, then eating the – well, actually, the first apples of the season are usually shit. Eating the best apples of the season and just – simply enjoying an apple is is meaning experiencing itself the universe exists for that to happen and that's available you can argue or logic your way to that universe because as we said before just talking about whitehead as as one i think very good example uh 
so if you don't grant science that one free miracle, then you're still living in a magical universe. And that's usually enough for people who aren't like maybe drawn to a spiritual quest to sort of realize actually uh, this this one moment of enjoying the apple the like is the point of the universe. Yeah. You know, that that's going to be the next time somebody uh, comes in for a reading and asks me to, to help them find their meaning. I'm just going to keep a basket of apples there and hand them one. Like, there you, you go. go. Enjoy. Yeah. You ready? <laughs> Let's go for a walk. <laughs> um, so let me ask you this, though. Have you, in your journey, lost your sense of meaning? I've lost a sense of because I don't really, I don't really care about my meaning. Um, I've lost a sense of the universe being magical. Uh, it happens. The worst case was when I first moved to London, we moved, uh, I think it was about two weeks before Lehman brothers collapse, which was the worst time in the history of money to move to London. So we lost all our money and it was a traumatic and horrible experience. And it kickstarted some very fruitful things for me, like some popular post series to do with how the shadow state and banking and so on works and, and rune soup. But, uh, it sort of knocked me into a deep depression. Uh, I get episodic depression, which I manage with uh, mushrooms and uh, exercise and, and so on. But when you're depressed, uh, the, the universe, everything tastes like ash and, and it's flat. And it, it like, and so, yes, I have, I guess, medically or chemically lost it uh, in, in that sense. I've also sort of fallen away from it. it. It happens in your early 20s. I was in New Zealand and I started getting these really good jobs and it was just after, it was after the dot-com bust when digital was roaring back to life. So anyone who kind of was under the age of 25 was getting quite good money and I was on more money than someone of that age should have been. And uh, and and yes, the, the sort of the treats of modern life tasted for the first time like wine and expensive wine and holidays and all that kind of stuff meant that the more satisfying you know occult or spiritual pursuits were sidelined for a number of years but otherwise yes there's been and this way i have tremendous it's also why the the becoming invincible chapter is extreme is as extreme as it is because i i really know what the taste of of a dead universe is like and it's not pleasant so tremendous sympathy for people who are in that uh in that situation Hmm. yeah yeah i uh it's interesting how we can sort of lose lose that connection periodically and that's you know i mean for me uh, practice and space and time and you know making making sure that i don't uh, allow things to you know like like upswings in life, you know, that I have all sorts of wonderful and exciting things happen right now. And I'm just like, yeah, and this is a turn of the universe and we'll see, right? You know, it's it's like... Yeah, it's, it w- yes, exactly. Things, uh, the same attitude is required on the way up as it is the way down. Absolutely. Yeah, because these things, the party doesn't go on forever, right? Sooner no, later, sooner... everything changes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. So when, when you're talking about... Um, your magical stuff, right? I'm curious if you've ever done um, done work to orientate yourself. If that's a thing that's that has occurred to you, or do you do you divine yourself much? Oh yeah, regularly. I love tarot. I love, love, love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if I could, um, 
yeah, I, I adore it. I, I, I collect tarot decks like a maniac. Uh, I, I think it, it's it's the most like astounding thing. Uh, and I do regular. So I have I have a sort of monthly procedure that involves uh, astrology and it involves a couple of other cycle models that I work to and a sort of monthly tarot forecast. I mean, I'll, I'll just use them. I, I think they're remarkable for just kind of wandering around inside your own head, uh, let alone their divinatory capacity. But I use um, Sibylla Oracle cards, the whole thing. Love it. Uh, but I have a monthly thing where I'll do a monthly forecast of cards, uh, astrology, cycle model, uh, or cycle models, and sort of say, well, this is what I'm think. This, you know, this is what this one says. This is what that one says. And uh, and and that seems to work quite well. You sort of get better at it and and, and learn what's good for the other one. Uh, but if, if is that what you mean by orient? Yeah, yeah. And then I guess the sort of second question is, you know, uh, do you, you know? I mean, back to that idea of like calling up a spirit and being like, hey, where where am I going? What should I be doing? You know, is there is there a place where You've sort of explored agency in that kind of way as well, or in direction. There are um, a, a spirit would have to um, really bring the rain in proving that it was who it says it was before I would ever. They're liars, um, so <laughs> so I would never ask what should I be doing with my life unless it showed up. With say okay, and it tells me. I say all right. Well, I would like a hundred million in in cash tomorrow, <laughs> uh, and. If that doesn't show up, I'm not doing what it says. There's, particularly in the Western tradition, but you find that elsewhere, spirit or contact with the spirit world is is unreliable, uh, just by how the na- the nature of the universe is structured. And there are a lot of people on the other end of the phone, or a lot of things on the other end of the phone that either don't understand or uh, have a vested interest in sending you wrong because of how they feed or so on. So in in the grimoire tradition, it's there are very specific ways of essentially it's difficult to to call them up and they have to be wrangled because it's uh it's an unreliable procedure and they aren't the sort of people you should um you probably shouldn't ask anyone like alive (laughs) or dead human or non-human what you should do with your life uh if you have the you know the tremendous fortune of of being in a human body at this point in time i think uh, i think it should be up to you but the, the spirit like spirit contact is is a highly addicting and amazing experience and it's good for all kinds of stuff mm-hmm. uh but definitely not that hmm. cuz it's interesting for me in my practice you know i mean the orishas you know i mean a lot of we could say a lot or all of the divination um, in these traditions with the, with the Orishas is towards uh, orientating and reconnecting with our with our Ori and our destiny, right? And so, sure. So again, it's very different than you know calling up well, Solomonic energy or you know. No, absolutely. You're dealing with um, like the spirit lists change the the sort of grimoire spirit lists change over time, and some of them are leftover decans from Egypt. Some of them are only one or two of them are sort of you know previous gods and and so on these aren't what i think a lot of people don't get when they think about grimoire magic is that it is not a complete cosmology it Mm -hmm. exists within one it exists within as i was saying before almost like that high middle age european catholic idea of an animate universe that's filled with ghosts and spirits and agency and so on these are a kind of subset of beings that are in it it's not a complete cosmology like you will find with the orishas and the orishas have that 
whiff of Egypt in the back of them where not only are they independent and separate beings, but they are also the energy that runs the universe. So mm -hmm. they're sort of an animate version of it. So you're dealing with a cultural description of how the universe runs, how it's actually powered, built and powered, right? And that that's a very different um, relationship and divinatory system where it is more about, as you were saying, kind of aligning with the kind of flow of the universe because the universe is represented within these cultures in that way. And that's a thing I think, uh, well, not just me, it's not like I came up with this idea, but there's there's very good evidence that somewhere in the sort of early DNA of the uh, West African deities that become the Orishas, uh, the Orishas that we you know know today is that dynastic Egyptian idea that uh, you, you the gods are amongst other things a topological metaphor about how the universe was created and runs mm -hmm. and uh, so it's an alignment model uh, whereas the you, you are dealing with with the grimoire spirits you are dealing with a separate entity that has specific bound limited powers yeah and its tendency towards having its own agendas uh yeah, tends to be way higher right it's it's a separate person uh mm -hmm. it's 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 a separate like entity to you uh you get as with anything else and this is where it starts to match spirit traditions around the world um, you find ones that you have a personality match with. Um, they like you enough. You like them enough. And then, so no one works like, you don't really spend your life working the full list, uh, but you do end up with your own sort of X-Men team uh, of a few of them. And, and, and then that starts to get interesting. And you are sort of part of their development or experience of the physical as they are part of your experience of the the non-physical and that's usually manifested through things like offerings and different pacts and agreements and 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 so on but uh that is an interesting it certainly keeps life interesting uh but it's not it's not a cosmological description yeah i think it's also interesting that um well i mean in both cases really but certainly in the what we're talking about what you're talking about um the more we the more we sort of step back a bit from being purely transactional about these things and start to look at it in a more relational way the the more can come from those things the better those relationships can be but also i think the more clearly that we can understand the nature of those relationships right because if it's transactional it's like oh they've got this thing if it's whether it's wisdom or power or whatever and and i got to get them to give it to me versus like hey we we resonate in the same way and we we get along and there are things that were that are beneficial to both sides of this equation and you see that um so i had a guy uh who wrote a book called the tire cult i had a guy called uh, peter jenkins on the podcast beginning of the year and in tire cultism or tie animism the spirits who are closest to earth which we would call demons but you know aren't um, but they're sort of closer to the uh, goetian spirit idea right are the ones that most understand the physical so those, they're the ones you go to when you want a new car uh but there is uh, part of the spiritual development of spirits is engagement with you're a higher being than those lower spirits so they accumulate merit in that sort of animist buddhist sense by working with you and and you accumulate merit by elevating them now interest and so this you have that reasons other than transactional uh motives baked into most animate cultures and funnily enough that's there 
if you read uh, sort of European spirit traditions correctly, because you have people who's in is described in Chaos Protocols, but you have St. Nicholas of Tolentino who would pray for um, spirits in purgatory uh, and as a result kind of got all these like, you know, miraculous powers and, and became a saint. Uh, you have in City of God, you have the sort of idea of um, interacting with a higher intermediary angel somehow elevates you. And you have a similar thing in the Grimoire traditions of uh, if you need to use the spirit of a murdered criminal, you, what you offer to them is to say a, or to pay for a mass to be said in their name, because obviously you're dealing with you know 1400s murdered criminals do not get last rites and they do not get buried in a church. Sure. So you you are giving them you're doing that's the same thing as the Thai elevation thing, right? You you have a um, you have an exchange. Uh, which is sort of fundamental to animism as as an idea. Rather than I think, therefore I am, you have I relate, therefore I am. And that's that's the sort of ecosystemic universe that uh, I think is, is probably the most healthy. And it's the one that uh, that's that's what the reenchantment of the world looks like to me, an ecosystemic spirit universe. Hmm. Well, and to me, that's where uh, the miracles and the wonder are. You know, I mean, absolutely. It, it's astounding to me the the things that happen by you know, being present in the, you know, in the place where I go and do my, some of my spirit work these days, you know, and, and then the things that happen and that you experience by being there and being present in those spaces are, are just wonderful, even when they are often something that seems tremendously simple. You know, I did some work a little while back and as I, and it was, it was cold. I mean, it's winter here, right? So it's cold and there shouldn't be moths and stuff like that but for some reason all these moths emerged from the woods as i was walking back out you know and what a what a sense of wonder you know what a re-enchanting of the world that is let alone the other connections that happen there just by being present yeah. right yeah being present but you also know it was this is the universe if you talk to the universe and you give it a voice, like if you say, I acknowledge, coming back to that whitehead thing, I acknowledge that the universe, you don't have to say this, it's a silly, clunky sentence. Uh, I acknowledge that the universe is an evolving organism existing to experience itself. Um, though the event, the moth event and the spirit work event are connected. That, Absolutely. That's, that's yeah. you, like, uh, and this is the sort of why the best thing to do for people who are, like, losing meaning is to, you know, quickly tip them into a spirit haunted world and, and see if they have the same question. Mm. That's it. Now, now, uh, police reports of people breaking into haunted, abandoned yeah, exactly. <laughs> sanitariums <laughs> the world out. It. it is against it's criminal damage, and in the U.S. in particular, um, some of them it's federal property as well, so it's a federal crime. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this is definitely why you should not do it. Yeah, exactly. We we are not giving advice here. Do not call us from jail. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was curious too. You were, you were, um, you you had a great analogy because I know you were away recently scuba diving, right? And uh, you had this great analogy about sharks and swimming and when to swim from from somewhere that I was hearing you talk about that. Do you remember what I mean? Uh, I use sharks all the time. I love sharks. So you you were talking about. Uh, the fact that there are sharks in the water is not a reason not 
to engage in stuff. But to oh be... yes, absolutely. Yeah, if you, if you're talking about spirit work, because I get this, um, the the premium membership for uh, Rune Soup has a bunch of things in it, but one of the things it has is an ongoing course each quarter and we're doing sigils at the moment so we've got experienced people in and some new people and uh some of the new people like i'm really interested in this but is this going to mess with the lives of my you know i've got two kids and and so on is 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 magic going to mess with their lives and i'm going to be like yeah it could you know if you do it wrong again there's no sense in, in pretending otherwise but there are ways to um there are ways to do this, and you're really only doing it because the kids will be better with a parent who lives a meaningful life anyway, and, and thus their lives are meaningful. But the shark analogy then is if you, you know, um, cut yourself and go into murky water at midnight or, you know, dusk somewhere near Johannesburg, you're going to get attacked by a great white shark. Now, the Johannesburg one is an interesting example because there's a, I forget her name at the moment, but there's a marine biologist who is testing, this might be the story you're referring to, who's testing uh, when shark-on-human attacks happen. Uh, because you look at them and go, there was 120 or whatever it is, you know, 80 shark attacks last year. Uh, and they obviously clustered around the summer because, you know, people get in the water in summer. But let's be more specific. Where and when are they clustered? So she sort of matched the time of day of attacks and locations within this particular bay. And they to the point where if you avoid that part of the bay at that time, you're sort of more or less guaranteed you're not going to get attacked by a shark. Uh, and that's understanding the patterns of how spirit work and the spirits move and operate. We have this idea refracted in the in the sort of Western magical tradition of of deckhands and providing spirits of days and hours and and so on. And if you kind of fall into alignment with that, uh, you don't get eaten by the shark. And I, I think that's remarkable because I, at every point, and this is a, it's almost hermetic, but it's it's a bit updated. At every point when you are looking to understand something about the spirit world, look at the natural world because you're essentially seeing on a spectrum, the like literally the other side of it. It exists on a spectrum of physical to non-physical, and that's the spirit world. So if you discern patterns there, then it's, it, it is quite good. It's, it's good to think of that analogically to other parts of spirit work. So I use the shark thing all the time. And that's just an example of how you can minimize by being sensitive and kind of giving them uh, agency and, and taking it a bit seriously. Mm-hmm. And this is where, you know, we can look at our astrology, you know, and I mean, we have all sorts yep. of, you know, exciting astrological stuff coming up over the next while, you know, and you're like, huh, maybe that's less of a time for this energy, or maybe it's more of a time that way, or, you know, or you just go back to your cards or, your, or the spirits that you work with and be like, is this a good time for this? Yes or no, you know, and look at those patterns and, and evolve them and engage them and listen to them, right? Because the universe is speaking and spirits are speaking. And if we're, if we're paying attention, then it's all there. We can, we can not avoid it, but be on the right side of the statistics or on the right side of, you know, sunset in that section of the bay or whatever. Yeah. It's, um, you know, do you want to drive with or against the traffic on the freeway? Like you can drive against it it doesn't it's not going to be great but you can and and there's a sort of alignment 
and again, you find this basically everywhere, but the sort of consumer materialist culture we have today, you find that literally everywhere, and it's it's us. <laughs> and so this 50-year period for about approximately 11 to 15% of the, the world population, and we think we're right compared to the other 85% over the last million years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, the minute the minute we start to open up to that, then all sorts of other things become possible. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, Gordon, I want to thank you for making time to talk to me today. It's been a real pleasure. Yes, it's been enjoyable. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, it's my pleasure. And uh, where's the best place for people to come and catch up with you? Definitely uh, runesoup.com or the RuneSoup Facebook page. Uh, I don't personally use Facebook. I, I just run the page. So if you want to chat, go there or Twitter. Um, and it's Gordon, G-O-R-D-O-N underscore white, W-H-I-T-E. Perfect. Thanks again, Gordon.